Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Today we're going to talk a little bit about depression. We've all been sad. We've all had the blues. We've also felt kind of funky at times. But what is depression? It affects 120 million people in the whole world. It affects 15 million in the U.S. Uh, 7% of the people who are older than 18 have depression. Over the next 20 years, it's projected to be the number one cause of disability in high-income countries and the number two worldwide. The annual cost is 30 to $44 billion, so this is a serious condition. Every person is different, biochemically unique, so what can we do to help those that seem depressed or when it occurs to us? So today we have James Greenblatt, MD, who will help us with these issues. He just wrote a book, Integrative Medicine for Depression, and he is a duly boarded certified in adult and child and adolescent psychiatry. He's got over three years, decade, pardon me, over three decades of experience treating clients with complex mood disorders, eating disorders, and other mental illnesses. He currently serves as a chief medical officer and vice president of medical services at the Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts, and is assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the Tufts University School of Medicine and the Dartmouth College of Jesus School of Medicine. An acknowledged integrative psychiatry expert, Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on the scientific evidence for biochemical interventions in psychiatry. He's also published multiple books and articles for professional and consumer audience on how to employ a comprehensive approach toward mental health treatment. His book series, Psychiatry Redefined, includes his newly released Integrative Medicine for Depression and draws upon his many years of experience in treating complex and diverse patient populations. Is a medical director of psychiatry redefined an educational platform dedicated to the evolution of modern psychiatry, offering books, courses, and professional fellowship. You can reach him uh, on the website psychiatryredefined.org. But in the meantime, we'll talk to him directly. And welcome, Dr. Greenblatt. Thank you, Susan. Good to be uh, with you. Okay. Well, let's learn about. The, well, well, first of all, what do you mean by integrative psychiatry? Integrative psychiatry is uh, an opportunity for uh, both physicians and patients to understand that our current model, meaning just symptomatic relief with medicines, is not the only model and is not the ideal solution for many struggling with depression. So it looks at what we used to call alternative, looks at nutrition and mindfulness and mind-body and lifestyle, as well as medications to develop kind of individualized treatment for uh, individuals struggling with mental illness. Okay, so we use a little bit of everything, and this includes functional medicine, naturopathy, herbs, uh, you know, uh, mindfulness techniques. Yeah, the goal is to really understand what's going on, what's contributing to that individual's depression, and that's a core uh, the message, everyone is different, as you described. And then um, in terms of, of a treatment model, some individuals can exercise and do yoga, some can't, and we really try to kind of fine-tune an individualized approach. Well, in your book, you say there are many different causes of depression, many contributing factors. What are some of those factors? Well, uh, we'd probably be on the air for hours. I, I think the um, the current model just uh, understands, in psychiatry, just understands the symptoms. So someone is sad, and we take an anti-sad pill, an antidepressant. And the the role of the model in integrative psychiatry is what might be contributing to someone who's depressed. And it could be a, a loss, unresolved grief. It could be trauma. But the focus of my work has been some of the medical and nutritional uh, problems. So it could be a low thyroid. It could be a hormone problem. It could be a deficiency in a, in a vitamin like B12. It could be a digestive problem, a gut problem. 
There are just so many different factors, and particularly for those that have really struggled and not found relief from our current model, an integrative approach explores these um, multitude of factors. Well, I mean, so if a person's kind of feeling sad, are there steps they can take themselves? Is there a way they can differentiate what might be contributing to the depression? Or when do they go need to go see a professional? Well, I, th- I think um, uh, in the, uh, most sadness clearly is a normal human emotion. We all feel sad. And, and I think um, the way sometimes I describe depression is kind of beyond sadness. It's almost a numbness. It's a indifference. It's a hopeless, helpless feeling with lack of motivation and sometimes physical uh, symptoms like uh, stomach problems, headache, difficulty sleeping, eating, no sex drive, no appetite. So it's a combination of sadness that is unrelenting, that is associated with a really hopeless, helpless feeling. And then I think it's imperative that someone seeks professional help. And is there a genetic contribution to depression? You know, absolutely. I mean, we we have research that says there is genetics, and uh, one of the most important things I teach uh, individuals who are training with us is is taking an extensive family history, two or three generations. Oftentimes it's not diagnosed, but there's a very strong family history of depression, and that's important information uh, for treatment. Uh, would some of this show up in our genetic SNPs, such as we would get in 23andMe? Well, there's certain uh, kinds of genetic um, SNPs that we're looking at, and uh, everyone's obsessed now with where they come from in their genes. I think it's a little overrated in terms of how it can help someone because it's not one gene for depression. But there are some important genes that look at metabolism of nutrients uh, that is uh, certain variants are much higher in those that are depressed, like uh, a gene that looks at how you metabolize a, a vitamin called folic acid. And there's a certain variant that would be in the 23andMe that says so you're much more likely to get depressed, and the treatment um, would be to enhance the uh, supplementation of this um, vitamin, folate. So that's interesting. You're saying that there are some genetic SNPs that are more correlated with depression, such as the MTFHR uh, gene. Would the COMP gene as well be affected as it affects the uh, metabolism of dopamine and et cetera? Well, I think it's uh, a lot of these genetic tests are important in terms of how we recommend supplements and how we recommend medicines. So the COMP gene is not um, as clearly uh, related to depression, but it certainly could be related to things, as you described, like motivation and how individuals metabolize that uh, neurotransmitter called dopamine. So if everybody's different and there are multiple contributions to depression, then what are the different kinds of depression well, I, you know, I think that um, the world of psychiatry loves to make up names, and we have this book with thousands of names called the DSM, um, you know, and and so as we, you know, make up names, we talk about uh, bipolar depression, bipolar illness, where there's mood swings, where someone gets very depressed and then gets very uh, elevated mood, and then there are our typical um, depression, when we think about that uh, major depressive disorder, when someone's feeling sad and hopeless, and there are other kinds of uh, depressive illnesses around uh, seasonal changes associated with um, medical illness, associated with substance abuse, associated with anxiety, and and I think the names are helpful, but in an integrative approach, the names are less important than looking at some of the uh, underlying. Um, metabolic problems that could be contributing. I like that because sometimes the DSM-5 seems like a procrustean bed that we're trying to fit the world into and any model we make, we're just uh, modeling you know, our thoughts. But anyway, how effective are the medications for depression? Well, one of the reasons you know we wrote this book and we've been doing the work that we've been doing is that you know our current treatment model doesn't work as well as we thought or we would like. So medications, you know, 
approximately 50, 60% effective um, for some individuals. Um, and our placebo, our sugar pills, are 40 to 50% effective. So that's one reason why it's hard to get new medications, but it also reflects that there's a, a, a vast number of patients that aren't helped by our traditional medication management for depression. Are there some cases that you can see that the medications are more likely to work? For example, Dr. Walsh has a paradigm looking at the methylation is seen at the receptor, and he can come up with who's likely to be helped by serotonin reuptake inhibitors versus folate. Is there some cases where you can guess they're more likely to work? I think um, a lot of our work has been on those that um, might have side effects and not work. I think, um, you know, the model that uh, I use in integrative psychiatry is looking at trying to understand deficiency states and then treating those and then utilize medications if needed. And one thing that we've been able to, to show over the years is that looking at these nutritional deficiencies, we can minimize, if not prevent, some of the side effects that um, individuals who have tried antidepressants often struggle with. So... Can you share with us some of these uh, very many uh, subsets of issues that you're going to be looking at? What are some of the nutritional issues? What can the listener do on their own to explore and experiment with depending on what kind of symptoms he has or what, what can the listener do on his own? Sure. Well, I, you know, I came up with a long mnemonic, the zebra approach, where each letter stands for, you know, another possible uh, you know, role a uh, that could take place for someone struggling with depression, and and some of it is simple: is to like sleep hygiene, to take care of yourself, sleep hygiene, um, sugar, and and stress. So we know that um, stress has uh, profound implications for biochemistry, adrenal function, inflammation. We know that um, insomnia and poor sleep um, affects mood. And we know that uh, refined sugar and uh, uh, junk food diet affects uh, mood as well. And there's now, which was common sense 20 years ago, now we had to do you know million dollar research studies to demonstrate poor diet increases risk of mood. So certainly those lifestyle choices are important. And then there are, the, I believe, some of the most important things you can do is go into your primary care doctor and make sure you get a vitamin B12 level and a vitamin D and iron checked because these are simple blood tests uh, as well as thyroid that are associated with depression. And people have struggled for years and years with uh, vitamin B12 deficiencies that never been treated or picked up by their primary care doctors. This is so important because every person that comes on this show, when asked what they can do to help whatever condition they're specialist in, come up with the same answers. Taking care of ourselves, healthy diet, minimizing sugar, avoiding harmful foods, good sleep. I mean, all of these issues, according to Mark Houston, can be risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Of course, that'd be the same risk factor for any vessel disease, Alzheimer's, according to Bredesen's model. I mean, these are essential for the health all around. So it's no surprise that depression uh, reacts as well. I mean, exercise also is another one. It lowers the cortisol and something called the BDNF. I mean, it, it lowers cholesterol and helps with the neurotropic factors, BDNF, that help uh, the brain uh, repair and plasticize. So all of these things are just so important for all of our health. So, yes. yeah, Absolutely. The exercise, I think, is important because many individuals that struggle with depression, they, they, they know about exercise, they've heard but sometimes part of the symptoms of depression is lack of motivation and hopelessness. So they can't get to a gym and they can't exercise and they can't walk. And so a lot of the interventions that we might utilize, whether it's B12 or therapy or other nutrients, is to kind of improve energy so then they can start exercising because if someone can exercise, we have very good research demonstrating it's probably our most powerful antidepressant. Uh, but it's getting to that point that it's critical. Um, so what kind of exercise, walking uh, or just whatever we can do, what kind of exercise would you recommend? 
I think the exercise component is uh, really has to be personalized as well because you you need to find something that you're comfortable with, that you enjoy, that is fun. And uh, I don't think there's the perfect exercise in terms of restoring um, mental health or certainly depression. We know, you know, yoga and mindfulness often uh, also been associated with improvement in mood and decreased anxiety. So some individuals prefer yoga. Other individuals, as they're feeling better, uh, prefer more aerobic um, exercise. Okay. So uh, when we go in and see our primary care doctor or go see a psychiatrist, what tests in addition to vitamin B12 and vitamin D would you ask them to make so we they can explore their individual path to dealing with sadness? Well, as I, as I said, thyroid is critically important. Thyroid hormone, the for for men, testosterone, low testosterone is associated with um, depression. The you know other kinds of tests are more in the realms of functional medicine, and some primary care doctors aren't uh, familiar with it. But some of the most helpful tests that we do are looking at levels of uh, amino acids. Uh, building blocks of protein, and levels of essential fatty acids, uh, the building blocks of 60% of the brain. So some of those tests can really kind of pinpoint a different uh, a nutritional approach that is not helped by medication. That's interesting. The fatty acids, is our cell walls and neurons are surrounded by, you know, fats. So it's very important we eat good fats. So what kind of fat should somebody eat? I mean, what do you think of the processed vegetable oils, etc.? Well, so many of the processed oils have what's called trans fats, and those have been shown uh, for, I think, 30-plus years to be associated with incidents of cancer as well as um uh, psychiatric problems. So we're trying to avoid uh, trans fats, and we want as good, uh, healthy fats, uh, both unsaturated and saturated. And for for mood, uh, we have long um, lists of articles looking at uh, fish and those fats um, from fish, those countries that eat more fish, having lower risk of depression and lower risk of suicide. Well, that's interesting because suicide apparently is like the eighth major cause of death in the U.S., so that's a pretty serious issue. What do you do when you see somebody that might be dealing with that? Well, for our young adults, it's actually, you know, the second leading cause now. So um, the, the suicide epidemic, that that's the book we're currently finishing, um, trying to help people understand that these same biological variables um, can be uh, related to suicide risk. And uh, the most important thing we can get is understanding that the vast majority of people that are depressed with suicidal thoughts have seen a healthcare professional, you know, within that year. And so as we educate healthcare professionals, therapists, and primary care doctors on asking about suicide, getting help, and understand these nutritional deficiencies can affect risk as well is is really um, one of the most important messages I think I can share. Okay. Um, Now, uh, in functional medicine, and recently there's been a lot of uh, discussion of the microbiome in the gut, and that so the gut, uh, do you believe the gut is in communication with the brain, and how would the gut uh, be an issue for depression? Because it seems to be an issue in all major illnesses. Well, absolutely. No, the chapter on, you know, restoring healthy digestion. So we know that the microbiome affects mood, behavior, major psychiatric illnesses from schizophrenia to bipolar illness, and the um, microbiome can be disturbed, one, from an unhealthy diet, two, from stress, trauma, and so restoring the gut is critical. So there are tests, functional medicine tests, that we can assess how much uh, what we call dysbiosis is there and how to proceed with um, healthy uh, probiotics. But probiotics have been shown to be helpful for those with depression. Uh, and, and if we suspect that our gut isn't healthy and maybe some people don't have the money to go to a functional medicine practitioner, what steps can we take so that our gut is healthy? 
I think for particularly um, individuals over 40, uh, so much of the depression I found is, is related to digestion and the GI tract. So I typically recommend a, a digestive enzyme with hydrochloric acid. Um, so individuals who are eating healthy foods and still not feeling well, they're likely not digesting their food appropriately. So a digestive enzyme with hydrochloric acid, the acid is critical to digest protein. And then uh, probiotic supplements, um, we need somewhere you know, around 50 billion as, uh, CFUs as the units, and, and these can uh, you know, be, be gotten anywhere. And, and uh, with the digestive enzymes and the probiotics, you do not need, need a lot of fancy testing, no possible side effects, um, and, and many people will feel better. Now, there seems to be a big hurry for the prescription pads to come out on antacids and PPIs, but those will lower the stomach acid, which probably will in- interfere with the digestive enzymes and digesting your food. And so what are your thoughts on that? No, absolutely. So much of our medications, one, large numbers of medications that we prescribe to patients in, in medicine cause depression. But what you're describing is uh, very important is our, these antacids, particularly these 24-hour protein pump inhibitors, they decrease the acid. So one, you don't absorb B12 and other nutrients. You don't break down protein. And we see this, uh, you know, often that that's a setup, particularly in those genetically vulnerable, for depression. Now, okay, because stomach acid is very important, and I think a lot of people who are diagnosed with gastric reflux disease or GERD, some of them might just have too little stomach acid. So the antacids, the you know, the leaflets that come with it, say to use only for a limited time. So that's something you have to work with your physician with. Uh, you don't want to stop it abruptly, but might want to have that conversation with your physician. Now, don't antibiotic stress, bad diet, and inflammation also disrupt the gut functioning? Sure. We, we saw this, you know, a lot more a number of years ago when every child was put on an antibiotic for every ache and pain or ear infection. So we see a lot of gut problems um, for that chronic antibiotic use. But now we're seeing it with, you know, lots of the infections and Lyme disease. So as antibiotic use increases, we see this dysbiosis. Sometimes we get overgrowth of yeast. Sometimes we don't get yeast, but we'll get this very uh, uh, dysbiotic gut and uh, needing probiotics to restore that. Now, also, uh, food sensitivities is a pro- another issue, I suspect, because there are some people that react to foods, um, and I, uh, some people would recommend uh, an elimination diet where you might eliminate the most likely allergens, that is foods that would create a reaction, and then see how that goes and add them back slowly. So anything that disrupts the gut um, you know, or food sensitivities is something else to consider as well, Correct. Yes, absolutely. The, the most significant, um, you know, dietary uh, insult that can affect depression is actually celiac disease. So celiac disease, where there's a abnormal um, reaction to gluten, which is wheat. And, I, and I'm not a you know fan that everyone has to stop gluten. Although there's a subset of individuals that have celiac disease, and celiac disease um, has a much higher incidence of depression, mainly, at least my opinion, that what celiac disease does is that reaction with gluten and interferes with absorption. So all the major uh, nutrients, uh, B12 and zinc and folate and amino acids aren't absorbed, and it just it makes them more vulnerable for becoming depressed. So it's really important that individuals um, you know, understand uh, there are food allergies, which are immunological sensitivities. Then there's an autoimmune um, disorder called celiac where a body can't tolerate gluten, and that puts you at a much higher risk for um, depression. 
that is very important. There is some controversy over gluten, but Tom O'Brien, uh, podcast is on the show, he claims that we just don't have the enzymes to digest gluten. It's like a big necklace and we can only get down, we can't break it down to the individual amino acids. After that, he postulates along with Eri Vajani that these things can leak through our gut, get into our system. Antibodies uh, will go after these because they look like a foreign critter. And then through molecular mimicry, it can attack our thyroid, our balanced cells, the Purkinje cells and cerebellum, the islet cells and the pancreas. For example, there's something called glutenataxia where people are wobbling all around until they stop the gluten. So... I mean, some there's the debate about how much trouble gluten causes. It clearly causes gluten I mean, difficulties for some. But whenever you get a foreign protein in the body, which can also happen with exposures to toxins, you run the risk of setting off autoimmune diseases, which are rising rapidly in our in our world. Uh, any comments? No, absolutely. Um, you know, the environmental. Um, uh, toxins, the what's happening with our the heavy metals are certainly as, associated with the major uh, inflammatory conditions that affect the mood. Absolutely right. Another thing about these toxins is the government say a little bit won't hurt you. You're under the limit. But these things are synergistic. They work by different mechanisms. For in diabetes, some toxins might affect the receptors. Others will affect the insulin resistance, etc. So a little bit of a lot of toxins is pretty serious. And I think the environmental working groups done studies that you know in uh, when in women that they had like 200 of these chemicals in them. Most people have BPA. In them. I mean, this is serious, and some of the experts say that these chemicals bind uh, to proteins in our body, and that, again, will set off an autoimmune disease, none of which we want. So, actually, uh, Dale Bredesen comments that one form of Alzheimer's, according to his model, is called toxic uh, Alzheimer's. So, toxins and what we eat and what we expose to and what we eat with and what we clean with can also contribute to malfunctioning of the body. And, and absolutely, one of the mechanisms, um, the BPA and uh, the phthalates and a number of these toxins that are just um, really in, in everything and uh, articles coming out that they're more um, um, than we thought, they, they affect... Um, metabolism and absorption of a trace mineral called zinc. And zinc is really an important mineral for depression. We, we write about it a lot. So these toxins can have direct effects on the, on the neurons in the brain, but then they can have these indirect effects by affecting the ability to have these uh, trace minerals available. And you need these trace minerals to make these neurotransmitters in the brain. So zinc deficiency is a common mechanism to a lot of these um, environmental toxins. Interesting. I also understand they can interfere with the conversion of T4 to T3, which is the essential uh, thyroid hormone, and they can interfere there as well. And a lot of other places, there are heavy risks for heart disease, etc. Yes, the the implications are, are really profound and I just think too often ignored. I agree. Now, does the brain and the gut, do they communicate with each other? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, we kind of are all aware of if we get anxious and nervous, we get the stomach aches, and we know what the how the brain communicates with the gut. But I think what we weren't as aware of 30 years ago is that the gut is in constant communication with the brain, and that's the... Um, relationship, whether it's inflammation or stress, um, of how mood and anxiety um, symptoms are affected by uh, inflammatory markers uh, in the gut. It's it's really quite uh, fascinating. And the good news for those of us who've been in this field for a long time is that, you know, traditional science and academic medicine has really kind of exploded in research looking at how the gut now communicates with the brain and and the rest of the body. Yeah, I wrote an article on autism in 2013, <clears throat> well, it was part of it, and I really wanted to push getting the gut in, and they kept fighting me, fighting me, fighting me, and I kept fighting back, and I finally got my paragraph on the gut in telling them, you don't want to be 20 years behind, so I won that little right. battle. But now it's no big thing, but back then, I mean, it made my year, oh, wow, look at my contribution, a paragraph on the gut. But right. 
What's interesting to me is I remember like 10 years ago, all these light bulbs are going off. Wow, there's a connection between heart disease and depression. I'm sitting here, really? There's an inflammation, an underlying issue for both of them? So tell me the role of inflammation and depression, I mean, with all the cytokines, etc. Sure. I mean, we know... Uh, inflammation has implications for lots of our major chronic illnesses, heart disease, arthritis, uh, cancer, Alzheimer's disease. But now what's clear is that there's, uh, I believe, a subset, I don't think it's all different, a subset of individuals who have elevated inflammation, which means their immune system is hyperactive, producing chemicals, um, because your immune system is overstimulated. And that overstimulation, those chemicals go into the brain and affect how we synthesize chemicals to keep our moods regular. So we actually understand the mechanisms about how chronic inflammation, regardless of the cause, whether it's stress, trauma, or a infection, how that affects mood. I mean, we've all known it if we've had the flu and we've been sick, we know what that's like, but that goes away in 24, 48 hours. But those same kind of chemical reactions can be there for long periods of time, resulting in chronic depression. Yeah, I agree with you that inflammation is a subset. I was asked to write a chapter on depression for a functional medicine text that not didn't get printed. But one of the issues that I was having discussion with is like for a melancholic depression, they thought that, you know, this is related to cortisol and the HPA axis, et cetera. What are your comments on that? That Yeah, absolutely. We can identify, you know, the mechanisms. And as we identify the mechanisms, we can uh, develop effective treatment. Some of it could be just our kind of mindfulness, our ability to help people uh, deal with stress and decrease um, stress to kind of support. Uh, another nutritional intervention is magnesium because magnesium supplementation can interfere with that overactive stress response system. Well, I was having a disagreement with the editor who was really pushing that cortisol is involved with melancholic depression, and I think she, uh, the person believed that a serotonin reuptake inhibitor would help, and I, she, but she apparently found a lot of research for that, but I didn't, so, uh, I, you know, so that just I was left unsettled because I didn't quite see it. Any, anyway, um, okay, you talk about certain minerals and stuff and zinc and stuff. Some zinc and magnesium are so important for the whole body and they're involved in so many, um, you know, reactions in the body. So tell us about some of the supplements and minerals and amino acids we might try on our own to help with our depression. Sure. I mean, uh, some of the simple ones. Are, are things like uh, magnesium. Uh, magnesium is a very powerful nutrient, and I believe it's it's one of the most common nutritional deficiencies that our patients face. You mentioned stress. Well, as stress levels go up, magnesium goes down. Our dietary intake, magnesium is in uh, is not repleted in the soil, so our foods are less um, magnesium dense, and the uh, foods that we're eating you know, are more of the more refined foods have less magnesium. So magnesium deficiency, I think the first article was written in the 1930s, has been associated with depression. And there's some research, there's not a lot of research because uh, nutrition research is just not that part of psychiatry. So magnesium is, is both the most common deficiency and the simplest to supplement. And it's um, very inexpensive. So that's great news for our patients. Magnesium is so important. I mean, you can use it can lower the blood pressure. It can help with sleep. It can help with anxiety, insomnia, concentration. It helps convert fats and proteins into energy. It's very important. It's in so many reactions in the body. Absolutely, and uh, hundreds and hundreds in terms of brain function. Okay, what about zinc? Well, zinc is, you know, also, as we described earlier, commonly deficient because of all the uh, toxins um, now, um, the BPA and the phthalates that are in our environment. Zinc is also um, deficient in many of the depressed patients we're seeing because it is not uh, plentiful in a vegan or vegetarian diet. It's most bioavailable in animal products. 
And some patients can't get a sufficient zinc in a uh, certainly a vegan diet and oftentimes a vegetarian diet. So zinc deficiency is now common, particularly in our adolescents. And you need zinc as a final pathway, again, to make those neurotransmitters, the dopamine, the serotonin, the norepinephrine. Without adequate zinc, we can't make uh, many of the neurotransmitters. And we've seen and research around the world supporting its link to depression. Well, actually, I think in your book, you, uh, you mentioned that depression seems to be correlated with lower zinc. And some of the symptoms of low zinc are hair loss, skin lesions, acne, diarrhea, white marks on the fingernails. And actually, you also mentioned that if you take zinc, it makes any antidepressants work better. And the best way to taste, test for zinc seems to be the zinc taste test, according to your book. Yeah, that's uh, sometimes hard to find, but it's a, just a, a diluted zinc solution. And so another common uh, sign of zinc deficiency is a lack of taste. And, and we see this a lot in uh, the elderly who get depressed. They just don't taste food, and so they push it away, and there's no pleasure anymore. So our taste buds are zinc-dependent enzymes, Gustin. So our taste buds require zinc. As we become zinc deficient, we see it most commonly in patients with eating disorders and elderly patients. We have no taste for food. There's no pleasure. And we just stop eating. As we restore zinc, their taste buds improve. So one of the tests is we would have our patients swish around the zinc sulfate solution. And if you had adequate zinc, you would have this strong, bitter taste and spit out this zinc sulfate solution. But if you didn't have adequate zinc, it would just taste like water. Well, what are some of the other supplements you might recommend? St. John's wort, tryptophan, etc. Uh, you mentioned many amino acids. So what other things might people try? Obviously, B12 would be an important one. But what other things would you yeah, recommend people? The B12 is critically important. The vitamin D uh, is really important that's tested for. Uh, because some individuals are very, very low, and you can't tell on a physical exam or looking at somebody that they how much vitamin D they need. So I really recommend testing. Uh, if you can't test, you should take at least 2,000 uh, milligrams because you need vitamin D, again, to make that neurotransmitter serotonin. And uh, that's really important. We talked about the omega-3s. Uh, fish oil is critically important to help with mood. I don't recommend taking tryptophan by itself um, for depression, but I do recommend uh, amino acids. There's the precursor to serotonin called 5-HTP, and that can be purchased in a health food store. So we use supplements with uh, 5-HTP that can be helpful for depression as well. What about SAMI? Uh, SAMI is a supplement that uh, research has been quite good uh, that it can be uh, helpful for depression. And uh, just the only caution would be if you have a family history or you have bipolar illness because sometimes it can be agitating. Um, but it, if at the right dosage is 800 to 1,600 milligrams per day, SAMI as a sole supplement uh, could be helpful for the treatment of depression. I read various uh, articles that some herbs might work almost as well as some of the antidepressants. Uh, so what are some of those herbs that might be helpful that somebody could experiment with? Sure. I think the, um, the two most commonly associated with depression with research are, are St. John's wort and uh, rhodiola. And over the years, I, I've had um, probably more success with rhodiola because it's simple and it's safe. So uh, St. John's wort it's important that you get it from a reputable company because it's an herb and you need six to 900 milligrams per day. Rhodiola, I found more, a little simpler, less side effects, less drug interactions. So rhodiola is, is an herb. Uh, Russians have used it for, for many, many years to improve uh, stamina and energy and concentration. But 100 milligrams to 400 milligrams um, acts um, as a kind of mood-enhancing stimulant medication, and we've had great success with rhodiola. And what about various hormones like the balance of estrogen, et cetera, because there's a movement to give bioidentical hormones. Uh, how, how would that affect depression? Well, I think for men and women, understanding you know the role of hormones 
is, is really important. It's hard to always predict. And uh, again, I'm not a fan of just taking hormones without testing, but going to a, a physician who's skilled with um, bioidentical hormones for someone who's had uh, mood issues can be uh, quite, quite helpful. I mean, I've read that glyphosate interferes with the manufacture of tertiary amines because it affects the shikimate pathway in the gut. Have you noticed that glyphosate interferes with making some of the neurotransmitters that are helpful in depression? You know, not directly, but we certainly we've seen kind of the growing uh, literature about the psychiatric manifestations and the certainly the overwhelming uh, use uh, of these um, chemicals. So I have not seen direct uh, research looking at specific neurotransmitters, but there's clearly psychiatric implications. And there's some people out there say, well, we can measure neurotransmitters and we can help balance them. I mean, this there's not really a reliable way to measure the neurotransmitters in your brain, is there? No, not in my opinion. I mean, I think it sounds good and, and doctors like it and patients like it. And there are lots of testing companies out there looking at levels of neurotransmitters. I've been practicing for over 30 years, and I have not found those tests 100% reliable uh, because they're only testing levels of neurotransmitters in the kidney because uh, nobody's testing what's in the brain, and these change over milliseconds. So I just have not found neurotransmitter testing to be a, a reliable test. Uh, kind of lab or marker for um, personalizing a treatment plan. I agree with you. Are there any symptoms or things we can look at to see how our neurotransmitters are doing, the serotonin versus dopamine, et cetera? Uh, Sure. Sometimes we look in in the urine for breakdown products of serotonin and dopamine, and and if those are low, um, we know there's low function. Oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, the amino acids are my best predictor. If the uh, plasma amino acids, the urine amino acids are very, very low, I just know that individual does not have the building blocks to make some of the neurotransmitters. And uh, supplying the amino acid precursor molecules um, will just support the synthesis of neurotransmitters. And then, you know, symptoms do help us. Um, kind of understand, um, I think it's a little simplified to say we have these neurotransmitter deficiencies because we never really stuck a needle in the brain to say that, but we do know that individuals struggling with depression likely have neurotransmitter imbalances, and as we look for some of the underlying cause, whether it's vitamin D deficiency, folate, zinc, B6, then we can kind of support improved synthesis of these neurotransmitters. This sounds so smart because not only will a person be improving their depression, they'll be improving all the biological pathways in their body and so the body works more as a symphony in harmony and working toward optimal wellness. This makes such sense because the brain and the body aren't separated. It's all part of one system. So I like this. You mentioned well, we have a neck, and sometimes psychiatry forgets that we do have this connection between the brain and the rest of the body, and we just have to kind of uh, evolve our treatment model to include uh, looking at what's happening in the rest of our bodies. That is so important. So people in the audience, if they want to look at the whole picture, uh, integrative psychiatry is a field that's out there. There are psychiatrists and other practitioners practicing it. So that is one option. So it'll take care of perhaps many different issues at the same time. Now, in your book, you mentioned that some medications cause depression, uh, such, I guess, as propanolol, etc. What are some of the medications that can cause depression? Sure. Some of the, the most common, you know, are, the, you know, medications that, um, individuals have been, you know, taking for a long time. So we have the um, steroids in particular. So we know uh, steroids contribute to depression as well as even suicide risk. We know that some of the hormone therapies can contribute. We know many of the, you mentioned the beta blockers, some of our blood pressure medications. Um, and then we have a list of, of medications, you know, like uh, the anti-smoking, Chantex, um, that's higher risk of depression and suicide. And then the uh, frightening, uh, sometimes um, 
maybe humorous a part of this equation is the medications that we use for depression <laughs> uh, can also contribute to more severe depression and suicidal ideation. So I think it's really critical that we understand what symptoms are related to the medications we're trying to treat, uh, use to help somebody. So tell us about the antidepressants that lead to more depression. I mean, there are warnings sure, on Zoloft, um, et cetera, but uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think in our field of uh, just kind of polypharmacy, prescribing uh, one medicine after another, we, we forget that if the first medicine didn't help, um, then we have to evaluate one if it made things worse. And what we now know, and the FDA has put a big black box warning on these antidepressants, that they can cause suicidal ideation. So they worsen the depression, and the, the individuals have this intense, perceptive thought of suicide. You know, I practiced um, for many years when I didn't see it, and as soon as I got in the world of eating disorders about 16 years ago, I saw it a lot. So I believe the suicidal ideation is related to uh, malnutrition, but it, it does happen. Someone takes these antidepressants, they have these intense, intrusive thoughts of suicide, and they completely go away when you stop the medications. Yeah, another thing about depression is if you do start getting better, that's when the risk of suicide increases because they've got the energy to do it. So we've got about, I don't know, five minutes left, so I'm not sure how much, but I would like to make sure that the points that are most important to you, that you can express them and how to get a hold of you. Obviously, looking at the whole body, looking at all the contributing factors, looking at all the things you can do is very important. But what else would you like to make sure that the listener takes away with them? I think one of the hardest things for us to talk about in terms of depression is is the role of uh, trauma, uh, early trauma, um, adolescent or even adult trauma. Um, sometimes that's only being remembered as adults. So that level of depression um, is not as easily treated with just a nutritional supplement, but with um, with therapy. And with some of these uh, underlying nutritional foundational interventions that we can, I believe, make a difference in all forms of depression. Uh, depression is treatable, and we have tools. Sometimes medicines are helpful. Sometimes therapy is helpful. But an integrative approach really combines all of the modalities that we know that has de- have demonstrated um, uh, improvement in individuals. Yeah, trauma is a very hard one, especially with post-traumatic stress, and people are learning more and more about that. So, um, yeah, that's a difficult one. And grief is something that's, you know, a human condition. Perhaps, you know, we don't need to give a pill to help with it, but all these nutritional and multifaceted approaches could well help. So, um, anyway, what further comments would you like to make? Well, I I think the other piece that, you know, we, besides the nutritional uh, deficiencies that we talk about is, you know, I have this expression, uh, nurturing, um, uh, nourishing the brain as part one and then nurturing the mind. And those are some of the, uh, you know, mind-body approaches, the meditation, the mindfulness. And um, there are research looking at everything from uh, being in nature um, spirituality, I think, is is one of the most important, you know, up there with exercise, demonstrating a resilience to depression and improved recovery on depression. So those individuals that have faith or if someone did not grow up that way, those individuals that can develop um, a sense of faith or spirituality do better in recovery from significant uh, mood disorders. That is so important because there are studies that it helps with just about any medical condition. Getting in touch with something bigger than ourselves, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it because I think the commonality of all the spiritual approaches should be what we have in common and not our differences. It is so important. Mindfulness, meditation, I think that is so important and necessary in the world, which is getting increasingly challenging. Absolutely. And and we know that these Practices can change the brain. So we can affect the anatomy as well as the neurochemistry of the brain as we begin to understand how these um, spiritual and mindfulness uh, practices um, 
affect our health. I think I've lost contact with the uh, engineer who's monitoring and helping us. So uh, any closing comments or how people can get a hold of you? Uh, I think the website, uh, jamesgreenblattmd.com, and our educational program where we're training um, clinicians and doctors, uh, psychiatryredefined.org is a um, online educational program uh, to support this education. Any other comments or things you would like to discuss? Uh, no, I, th- I think we've covered, you know, a, a broad range of integrative therapies for depression. Uh, I think the one comment that uh, I'll close on that we didn't talk about is, is kind of the hope, and, and that goes with spirituality, but it is kind of defined uh, by itself. So those individuals that can be hopeful and positive tend to uh, do better with any of the current traditional or integrative treatments. And as clinicians, we need to instill hope. And as patients, we need to kind of find those areas in our life that have meaning for us where we can kind of generate the hope uh, to recover if we struggle with depression. That must be so hard because people who are feeling hopeless and really down must have trouble seeing anything but poo. So perhaps a way to approach that is to look at the things they're grateful for and just be thankful for the grateful, the little things that are good as opposed to the overwhelming things that they perceive as bad. But that's a hard one if people are really down and feel hopeless. But I recommend looking at what you're grateful for. Yes, absolutely. You know, gratitude, um continues, again, to, both in the research and clinically to be a very important part of our mental health. Yeah, you just get up each day and see the things you're thankful for, something pretty, a pretty bird, a little puppy uh, that you've got a, a domicile you're living in, that you've got some friends. I mean, that can generate and perhaps expand. Anyway. I want to thank you. I recommend all the listeners uh, get Dr. Greenblatt's book um, and uh, some of his other books. Uh, look on information on the Internet to, and other sources so you can help each other. Discuss this with your uh, clinician, your psychiatrist, your physician. And so, you know, we can all approach better wellness. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Better.